going to be looking uh, together in the book of Romans, chapter 3. And I'm going to read from verse 21, Romans 3, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's quite a long time since we were looking at this together. Um, The last four weeks, I think, others have been preaching, so uh, maybe difficult to pick up where we left off. But where we left off uh, was uh, in, in that section, particularly verse 22, where Paul says, there is no difference. And we saw then, if you can remember, that although there are many differences between people, many differences just within the people in this room right now. But there's one thing that all humanity has got in common, and that is everyone has sinned. And that's what Paul is speaking about there. There is no difference. All have sinned. All miss the mark with regard to the glory that God intended for humanity. And there's no difference. There is one way of salvation for everyone. There is only one God, one way of salvation provided through Jesus Christ. No difference. I want us to move on now this morning to look at verse 25. Verse 25 tells us how it is possible to actually know God. How is it, how it is possible to be saved, as the expression is. What, what it is that we actually need to believe if we are to know God. And it's a difficult verse. There are some things that are actually basically simple, but just difficult to explain. For example, for young children here, one of the first things that you will have learned as you went through a storybook with your parents would be to tell one color from another. So you look at a storybook, what color is that? And you learn to say, that's green. Well, that's red. You learn to say that. And so I guess all of us have acquired that ability. We can tell one color from another, unless, of course, you're colorblind. To explain the difference between, say, green and red to someone who can't see, now that's difficult. How would you explain green or red to someone who can't see? It's So it's very simple to tell green from red. You try and explain the difference. Put it into words. Now that's very difficult. Some things are simple and yet hard to explain. And here we've got something that actually is very straightforward. But for people who can't see, for people who 
who don't understand about God, don't understand about the Bible, for people who can't see, it's hard to explain it. And it's even harder to explain because there is a word that is used there that we don't generally use in common conversation. The translation that I'm using here, which most of us are using, the New International Version, doesn't really give it very well. It says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. There is then a footnote with an alternative way, which is even more cumbersome. God presented him as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sin through faith in his blood. They're trying to avoid using a difficult word. Well, let's not avoid it. Let's use it. The difficult word or the difficult idea is a means of propitiation. Ah, you say, it all becomes clear now. (laughs) A means of propitiation. That's a word that we don't use commonly, and so obviously the translators think, well, let's try and get round it. It's a word about dealing with someone's anger, dealing with someone's wrath. And it's, as I say, not a word that we generally use, but that's the word that is used there. And it would be better to translate it, or more accurate to translate it in this way. God presented him as a means of propitiation through faith in his blood. And now, I don't know if you ever mark the page of your Bible, but if you do, and if you're using the NIV, it might be helpful to add another comma in. Because as it stands there, it says, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Actually, if you put a comma after faith, then it makes more sense. It's through faith and it's in his blood. It's not through faith in his blood. It's through a, a means of propitiation through faith and a means of propitiation in his blood. So it's a difficult verse. But it is a vitally important verse because this is how we are saved. This is what we need to believe if we are to genuinely have peace with God and know we've got a relationship with him forever. So let's look at what is being said there. It's difficult for all sorts of reasons because of what it says about God, what it implies about us, and so on. First of all, to understand this, we need to grasp something about God. And what we need to understand about God is his incomprehensible holiness. Perfection is something that we all find hard to really imagine because we've never experienced it. I said earlier about trying to say to someone who hasn't seen the difference between green and red. Be even harder to explain green to someone who has never seen if you've never seen it. <laughs> That's impossible. We have never seen holiness. We have never seen perfection. And so how can we describe perfection? But God is holy. What does that mean? It's beyond our understanding. However, to get some handle on it, one could look 
at Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah the prophet there speaks about something that he saw. And it's hard to communicate in words, but he, he tries. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah's got this vision. He said, I saw that, presumably he's in the temple. He said, I saw the Lord and his high, exalted, just the hem of his robe filled the temple and his high, above him there are these fiery beings, seraphs flying. And it describes them and they're just calling to one another about the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. The temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah is seeing holiness. What does it do to him? Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I don't know what he thought of himself when he went into the temple, but seeing that just convicts him of how unclean he is. Holiness. Now those words are kind of conveying it and yet really can't do justice to what God is like. We all have differing standards. You know, you visit someone's home and some people will say, Take us as you find us. And you realize why they say that. House is pretty untidy. Layer, nice, comfortable layer of dust everywhere. They say, just relax. And that's how they are. I remember going to one home, it's a bit like that, and uh, there's a father kind of looking after his young child. The child sneezed rather horrendously. And the father picks up the dishcloth wipes his son's nose, and puts the dishcloth back. I think I'll remember not to have a cup of tea here. <laughs> you know, people got differing standards, and that, that was how he lived, and uh, you know, takes as you find us, that's how we are. Other people, quite fastidious about hygiene, worried if there's dust anywhere, they just like the place to be clean, and be kind of repulsed by things that other people take for granted. Why did I say that? Well, actually all of us have learned to be very tolerant of things that God is repulsed by. And we kind of say to God, take us as you find us. We're just used to living in a world that is messed up with sin, a world that is messed up with things that God hates. But God hasn't changed and he is repulsed by things. He is angry with how his world has been spoilt. And how human lives are messed up and people don't seem to care. God is holy. 
And not only pure, holy, and right, so sin is repulsive to him, but also a God of justice, of absolute justice. When God gave laws to his people as they're about to have their own land at long last, and he's giving them rules for how they're to govern that land, how they're to live. In Deuteronomy 25 and verse 1, he says this, When men have a dispute, they are to take it to court, and the judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent, condemning the guilty. Nothing remarkable about that. That's justice. When it comes to court, the judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent, condemning the guilty. That's basic justice. If judges, or where judges, acquit the guilty, we know there's corruption somewhere. And sadly, in many nations, or some nations, that is how it operates. There's corruption all the way through the system, and you can bribe your way through. So the guilty actually get acquitted. That is wrong. God says judges must decide it, acquit the innocent, condemn the guilty. If that is the standard that God sets for us, can he operate on a lower standard? No, that will be his standard. He will acquit the innocent, but condemn the guilty. How then can we be forgiven? How then can God ever say to us, not guilty? It's a corrupt judge that acquits the guilty. A, a, a just judge will acquit the innocent, condemn the guilty. God is just. How then can we ever be saved. Back in chapter 1 in Romans, Romans 1, Paul in verse 16 says how he is not ashamed of the gospel. He's enthusiastic about it. He speaks about what the gospel does. It gives righteousness from God. He then explains why that is necessary. And he says something very important in verse 18 in chapter 1. Because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. That is our problem. God's holiness that we can't begin to imagine. He hates sin. And we've all sinned. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. So the scene is set. God is holy. And there's a holy indignation in heaven against human sin. There is God's controlled anger, not bad temper, controlled anger against sin. Sometimes we can begin to understand that when something particularly horrible happens and we feel anger. Maybe it's something that's been done to a child and the news hits the press and we just feel anger. Or maybe it's injustice somewhere in the world. We, we, we can know what the Bible calls a righteous anger. We rarely know it, but we sometimes know it. God knows it. Anger against what is being done. And there is no difference. All have sinned. 
So there's the problem. A holy God, angry with sin, we are guilty and we cannot remove our guilt and we cannot placate God's anger. We cannot do anything about it because everything we do is tainted with our independence, our pride and all other sorts of other things that, that God hates. And so Paul here speaks of not only the problem, but the incomprehensible solution to the problem. We're here in the very heart of the gospel. We've been singing song after song this morning. I didn't speak with Tom beforehand about what we're going to speak about, but we sung song after song about the cross, what Jesus suffered. What was really happening at the cross? Well, this verse tells us. God presented him as a means of atonement in his blood through faith. A holy God created us for a holy purpose. And look how we live. Look what we've done. We're guilty. He's angry. We can't do anything about it. But what this tells us is God did something about it. God has changed this situation. God presented him. Or God set him forth. God did something in this situation. And of course, that's the gospel message in well-known words. In John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, God so loved the world. Yes, God angry with human sin, but also simultaneously loving. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God presented him. God has done something. And that expression, presented, means just that. It means something done in public. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, and not many people are, but if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that the heart of Israel's worship was atonement, the day of atonement. An animal would be sacrificed. The priest would go behind a curtain into the holiest place, and blood was put on what was called the atonement cover or the mercy seat, Behind a curtain. He only went there once a year. No one else could go behind that curtain. It was a holy place. A place of making peace with God. This says God didn't do something behind a curtain. God didn't do something in secret that we can only hear about. God presented him. This means of atonement happened in public. Crucified. The world passing by, seeing him there, very public. God presented him. It was seen. It was witnessed. It's fact. And as Paul is writing, there are still people around who saw what happened. There are eyewitnesses. This is not just something we kind of have to believe. God presented him publicly as a propitiation or a means of propitiation. Now, some people don't quite read this right, and they get half the story. 
They get half the story of God, God's wrath being suffered by the Son of God. And it's as if they say they've got an angry father punishing his son. And then you think, well, that's, that's terrible what happened to Jesus. Some people, have you heard the story that some people use to illustrate this totally wrongly? Of, so I won't tell the whole story because it's too long, but about that railway um, a signal man, or he was looking after the points or somewhere in America, and there's a, he, he has to pull the lever so a train can go through safely, but it's at the cost of his son. And you heard that story? And you think, oh, that poor boy, terrible. A father killed his innocent son. That is not what this is saying. That is not. It's not that Jesus is the helpless victim. God presented him, that is Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. And the scripture also says, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God is father, son, and spirit. Three who are one. And in what we see happening here, we see three who are, who share the same resolve, the same decision, the same love to save a guilty world. It's not a cruel father punishing his son, but the son saying, I will do this. It's God, father, son, and spirit agreeing together how we could be saved. This matter of justice, this matter of holiness that we can't begin to imagine, that says sin must be punished. Sin must. You can't acquit. You can't acquit the guilty. You cannot. That's corruption. God is holy, holy, holy. So God presented him, Father, Son, and Spirit, resolved at their united cost to do something about this. But it's terrible. It is terrible. None of us can imagine, because we can't imagine holiness, none of us can imagine what it would be like to come guilty before a holy God. To have a holy God turn and look at us when we're guilty. None of us can imagine that. The final book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, describes it in picture terms, and it speaks about people who do face that, crying to the mountains and come fall on us and hide us from his face. Can you imagine being suffocated in a landslide? Horrendous, but better that, they're saying, than to face God looking at sin. See, a little glimpse of it when Peter, having said to his Savior, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, yes, you will. No, I won't. Even if I die, I'll never deny you, says Peter. Then, before the day's through, he curses and swears, I don't know this man. And then he's standing at a distance. He knows what he's just done. And it says, Jesus turned and looked at him. And Peter went out and wept. I don't know what was the expression on Jesus' face, but he just turned and looked. And Peter's guilty, and he runs. Wrath, God's wrath against sin, doesn't bear thinking about. 
horror upon horror. And as a man, Jesus, the Son of God, become man, as a man, Jesus shrank from that. Because he knew what that meant. He came to live as a human being without sin, living as one of us, to identify fully with us, to take our place. But he knew. He knew what that would mean. He came willingly to do it. But as he came to that hour, the horror of it struck him. We read about that in Matthew's God. We read about it in all the Gospels. In Matthew, Matthew 26, Jesus is facing that terrible hour. And he goes away with his disciples. He wants them to pray with him, but they don't realize what's going on. They're just tired. They go to sleep. And he says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He knows there's a cup of suffering and he knows he is appointed. He's agreed with this. That's why he came. He knows that he's appointed to drain that cup. And now at this hour, he knows it's about to happen. He says, oh God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Goes back to his disciples, but they've just fallen asleep. Could you men not keep watch with me for an hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray. Then he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Came back, found them sleeping. He left them, went away once more, and prayed the third time, saying the same thing, the horror of it, getting to him. And there on the cross... Yeah, the physical suffering, horrendous, but not unique. Either side of him is someone being crucified. The physical sufferings are not really what it's about, although that is horrific. But what it's about is God's wrath against sin. And there, as Jesus is crucified, punished the guilty, well, guilty with our guilt, innocent in himself, but our guilt on him, and there he faces justice in our place. And there on the cross it says in Matthew 27 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. That's from roughly midday to three o'clock in the afternoon when the sun is in the middle of the sky when normally it's the hottest, brightest time of day, Jesus is on the cross and suddenly it goes dark. Three hours, dark. Jesus is bearing our sin. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Rejected by God, forsaken by God because he's polluted with your sin and mine. He'd lived in 
in eternity, one Father, Son, and Spirit, bound together in unity and love. Coming into this world, he becomes a man, and time and again his Father calls out of heaven, this is my Son whom I love. And Jesus goes away and prays through the night. He's got unbroken fellowship with his Father, although he's a man. Always doing his Father's will. It was his meat and drink to please his Father. And then, anger from his Father. Rejected by his Father. Wrath against sin. He is the means of propitiation. The problem, God's wrath against sin. The solution, God taking that on himself in the person of his son. It's amazing. We're on very holy ground here. This is mystery. God doing something about it. We couldn't. God presented him. That is God the son coming. And suffering God's wrath against our sin. It's amazing. And it's in his blood. Why does it mention that? Well, when Jesus was crucified, obviously blood was shed. But that's not just incidental. Because what Paul is saying in this letter is that this righteousness from God comes apart from law, but the law and the prophets testify to it. And the Old Testament was always pointing to this. I've referred to blood being taken and put on the, the, the mercy seat. And the, the, the Jews knew as part of their worship of God that, that blood had to be shed. Animal blood was shed as a substitute for them. They, and it was all pointing forward to the one who was going to come. And when Jesus first came on the scene. John the Baptist prophetically sees the significance of this man. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John saw Jesus fulfills all those foreshadowings of what was going to come. He's the Lamb of God. And he shed his blood. And the Bible, we, we, we can be squeamish about blood. And nothing wrong with that, but the Bible speaks about the blood of Jesus very often. Because it's through that, through that shed blood, that we belong to God, that our sin is dealt with, and wrath is turned aside. Now many Bible scholars find this whole thing very difficult and try to argue around it. And many people say, now come on, how can you talk about a God who has wrath against sin when surely we all know God is love. Well, certainly the Bible says God is love. The Bible also says God is light. The Bible also says that God is holy. But you see, we prefer God is love because that kind of leaves us free to make our own rules, to be in control of our lives and know that God will basically smile kindly on us. We want to be independent of God. We want to make our own rules. But to understand that God is a judge, well, that restricts our independence. That means we can't be in control. It means we're accountable. We're answerable to God, and people don't want that. So they try and change what the Scripture says, and hence 
Uh, some people would translate this in a different kind of way. And maybe this translation that we have here is kind of blunting it somewhat. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. But if you change that verse, what about chapter 1, verse 18? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And unless wrath is dealt with, it remains hanging over us. But it has been dealt with. And it's dealt with by the God of love who gives his son to suffer his wrath in himself in our place. Blood shed so that we can be forgiven. God presented him as a means of propitiation in his blood through faith. That's the recurring theme in this letter. That we can't do anything to change our situation. We can't merit, we can't earn a relationship with God. God has provided a way that that is available to everyone to believe. To just believe. It's by faith. Chapter 1, verse 17. It is by faith from first to last. The righteous will live by faith. Chapter 3, verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Simply, our Our part is to believe in him and in what he's done. We believe in Jesus and we believe that this is what he has done. That he has suffered wrath in our place so that we need not. So there are two groups in humanity. There are those who face wrath and there are those saved from wrath. There's no third group or any other group. Two groups. Those who face wrath and those saved from wrath. In John's Gospel, John chapter 3, we've already quoted those words in verse 16. God so loved the world he gave his one and only Son. That chapter ends, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life For God's wrath remains on him. Two groups. Those who have eternal life and those living under the prospect of God's wrath. It is imperative that we believe in Jesus. Some people seem to think you only need faith if you've got some kind of basic weakness or some kind of need. You can't cope with life. You need some kind of crutch to help you through. And people say, no, I'm, I don't have that kind of problem. I'm okay, thanks. Uh, if I ever get into need, maybe I will turn to God. But in the meantime, I'm fine. No, it's not about do we have some basic flaw in our character and we feel we need a crutch, an emotional crutch or whatever. The fact is, we all have sin. And the only people who don't need Christ are those who are totally perfect. And no one is. And so we face this prospect of God's wrath unless we have a Savior. It is imperative that we believe. Paul is passionate about it. He says, I'm not not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes. And Paul wants to go wherever he can to make sure people know that. 
It's imperative that we believe. And it's also vital that having believed, we continue to believe this. Paul has said it's by faith from first to last. We're born again. We become Christians by faith. And then we've got to go on believing. So, if you are a Christian, if you have believed in Christ, never, never think that God is angry with you. Because if you slip into thinking that God is angry with you, then actually you're doubting what happened at the cross. Because what happened at the cross was anger was dealt with. God's anger against sin fully taken by Jesus. Never think that God is angry with you. Never slip into thinking that in some way you're unforgiven or not really accepted by God. That again is to doubt this verse. God presented him as the means of propitiation in his blood through faith. Never think that God is unwilling to accept you, that God is unwilling to work in your life, that God is unwilling to be close to you. Never think that you have to repay. Never think that you have to do some kind of penance because of things that happened in your past and you think, surely that can't just be forgiven. No, anger against your sin and mine fully dealt with at the cross. The blood of Jesus is sufficient, totally sufficient, and we believe it by faith. God presented him as a means of propitiation through faith in his blood. We believe it. And our position, having believed, Paul will go on to say in chapter 8, verse 1, is therefore, because of all of this, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We get promises in the scripture and through prophecy, we get promises of great things that God wants to do. And it's all too easy to think, well, will I be involved in that? Would God do that for me? Would I experience God's power? Would I see God doing that in my life? It's so easy for us to slip back to think somehow we've got to do penance or we're not really accepted. We've got to believe what happened at the cross. Say, all my guilt laid on Jesus. The just punishment fully dealt with there. And I am forgiven. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can come to God with confidence by faith. By faith. Because of what Jesus did. This is the central ground of the gospel. Got to get hold of it. It's a shame that translations mess around with it. Got to see it. Verse 25 here. It's very easy when you're going through a book like Romans. Every verse you come to to say, this really is the most important verse. 
fact, if, if you've read any of the sermons by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I would say, if you haven't, have a go at it. But you'll find every verse, virtually, he says, this, I sometimes think, is the most important verse in the whole Bible. And then he moves on to the next one and says the same about that. He just loves what he's reading. And it's very easy to do that. But I would say, this verse has got to be one of the most important verses. We've got to understand what happened at the cross. Yes, it's incomprehensible, and yet we've got to get hold of it, because it's by faith in this that we're saved. It's by faith in this that we know there's no condemnation. It's by faith in this that we can come to God with confidence, knowing we can expect to receive from God. Because all our guilt fully dealt with. This is the central ground of the gospel. And it tells us that we can't be casual about obeying God. Look at the cost. Look at the cost. Paul says we've been purchased with his blood. Yeah, we belong to him. Can't be casual about obeying God. We can't be non-committal about Christ. There's a him, isn't it? It says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You can't be non-committal about this. You know, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, presented in public, people are just passing by, mocking, they couldn't care less. But when you see what it was, ha- what it was about, when you see what was happening, oh God, I belong to you. Oh, I'm yours. Lord, all I am is yours, as we were singing earlier. <laughs> this... this This is amazing. You can't just turn away. We can't be casual. We can't be non-committal. But we can enjoy confidence towards God. We can rejoice that we are saved forever. Nothing can separate us from him if all this happened. It's all dealt with got peace with God, got eternal life, got the reality of his love and his grace eternally, all provided by him. God presented him as a means of atonement through faith in his blood.